My guest today says that we've been duped, that the world is getting better, not worse. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. Here's the number to call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. We're going to be asking an interesting question today. Namely, is the world getting better or is the world getting worse? How should this affect our theology? Should it affect our theology at all? Do we just look to what Scripture says about the end of the age? And, and what does Scripture say? Should we expect that every generation is going to be spiritually worse than the generation before? Or, or should we understand that, well, no, things are actually getting better. The gospel is spreading. We'll be talking to author J.D. King about that at the bottom of the hour. What that means, though, is this. If you would like to weigh in with a point about the tribulation, if you hold to a pre-trib rapture and would like to raise some reasons that you hold to that, if you believe that Jesus could be coming any second and that there are no signs that we're to be waiting for, if you differ with my view and that of Professor Craig Keener, that there is no separate rapture that is seven years earlier than the second coming of Jesus. You'd like to express your differences by all means, give us a call 866-348-7884. Then bottom of the hour, I'll be speaking with author JD King, his new book, why you've been duped into believing that the world is getting worse. Yeah. Very, very interesting subject. Okay. Let me lay out a few things about the end times. God is not interested in satisfying our curiosity or titillating our interest or, or, or just throwing things out to fascinate us. God is practical. He talks about the future so we know how to live today. He talks about the future so we can have hope. He talks about the future so we can be prepared. He talks about the future so that we can live in a way that makes sense in light of who he is and in light of what's coming. So there's a lot of fascination about the end times, which is impractical. In other words, it has, it has no particular meaning for today. It's just, wow, did you know that? Wow, that's going to be interesting. That's not biblical prophecy. Even though biblical prophecy is amazing and fascinating, it's there in a practical way. I'll give an example. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, God speaks about the end of the age, the last days, and he talks about Jerusalem being exalted as the highest mountain and that all nations will come streaming to it to learn the word of the Lord, the teaching of God, which will go out from Zion. And nations will beat their plow, their swords into plowshares. There won't be war 
anymore. It's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary passage. That's Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. Isaiah then turns to his people and says, Oh, oh, Israel, Judah, my people, walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, the day's going to come when the nations of the world will come streaming to Jerusalem. All right? They'll come streaming to Jerusalem to, to learn of God. And, and if we're rightly understanding the Hebrew, it could potentially mean they will, they will be vibrant. They'll gaze on it with joy. But the most natural meaning is they'll come streaming like a river up, up upstream to the mountain of the Lord. You're yeah, very interesting. That will be the dynamic pull of God's presence. So we, we are, we, the nations of the world be drawn. So then Isaiah talks to his own people says, come on, let's walk in the ways of the Lord. And there's a play on words, the way the nations speak, they're going to come and learn. There's a play on words that Isaiah saying to his people, come on, come on, let's, let's do this. The nations are going to follow our God's teaching. Let us follow his teaching. Or another example, a New Testament example. In 2 Peter 3, Peter talks about the destruction of the universe, so the, the renewing of the universe by fire, speaks of the day of the Lord. So this whole future period of the return of the Lord and his kingdom, and then the renovation of the universe, all right? And, and then he says this, in light of all this, in light of the fact that everything's going to be changed and everything's going to be shaken, how should we live today? That's what's written. How should we live today? And, and he says this, um, <clears throat> since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So isn't that interesting? In light of the coming shaking of the universe, let's live holy lives today. And by doing so, let's hasten the coming of the Lord. And then let's live with expectation of the promise that is ahead of us. Or, or 1 John 2, the end of the chapter and into the beginning of the third chapter. In light of the fact that when he appears, right? So 1 John 2, end of the chapter into 1 John 3. When he appears, we're going to be like him. We're going to see him as he is. Therefore, how should we live today? We should live in purity today because we're waiting to see the, the, the pure one himself. So he says this, 1 John Two, uh, verse 28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Notice this again. Let's abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So when we talk about, Craig Keener and I talk about not afraid of the Antichrist in our book. By the way, when you get the book, we'll also give you a link to download the interview that we did together on Monday. We're not differing with a pre-trib rapture to be combative. Uh, Craig is absolutely not that kind of person. We're, we're not doing it to say we know better than others. We're saying our own study of scripture has convinced us, convinced us both decades ago, that the pre-trib rapture is not scriptural and that rather whatever period of tribulation there'll be on the earth, God will preserve us through it. 
and we're promised tribulation in this world. And when his wrath is poured out, he can protect us from his wrath. And that at the end of whatever tribulation there is, that Jesus will return and establish his kingdom. When he returns, we're caught up to escort him, just as the Jewish wedding custom, we're caught up to escort him to the earth where his kingdom will be established as he rules and reigns over Jerusalem for a thousand years. But if you differ with us on this, these, these are subjects we don't divide over. These are subjects that we, within the Lord, we don't divide over. Some people get very aggressive on either side. I've seen some people call us false teachers or heretics for rejecting something that the church never even knew about for the first 1800 years. Uh, but I've also seen people rip into pre-tribbers in very ugly ways. We can divide over this without dividing over our unity in Jesus. We can differ over this without differing over our fundamental faith in the Lord. So if my differing with you upsets you, then ask, well, why does it upset you? Because I'm a student of the word and I love Jesus and I'm looking forward to his return. And I'm not saying the Lord delays his coming. Rather, I'm saying, let us have the mentality of overcomers. Let us identify with the church in the midst of persecution and suffering as the early church was and to whom Revelation was written. And let us have the mentality of overcomers, Revelation 12, 11 tells us that, that the saints of God overcome Satan and all his wrath. How? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and by not loving their lives, even to the point of death. If you differ with me on that, we'll be taking calls on this next week as well, God willing. But if you differ with me, by all means, give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH, or if you need clarification on a specific passage, 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Jay in Idaho. Welcome to the line of fire. And thank you very much for having me. You're welcome. Um, so I, I was a little taken aback, honestly, by the the title today. Just you know, I, I've I've made my own news program and apologetics for the exact opposite of uh -huh. thinking that the world is getting much worse, right? And um, so I was wondering if we were to argue that the world was getting better. What would we have to make of the things that we see today that we haven't seen beforehand, such as, for example, the, uh, you know, you have the big things like the, the seeming acceptance of pedophilia, uh, growing at least, not overall, right? Um, homosexuality, of course, is mass accepted. Uh, polygamy is growing in acceptance. All those other kind of sexual things you have, even things like where the, the traditionally conservative sides, like, you know, the Catholic Church or Donald Trump, are not really morally great, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, and then to top all that off, you seem to have a a wave of ecumenism and also a wave of non-denominationalism. The non-denominationalism seems to be rejecting almost everything. Like, we just, you know, love and it's all free grace. And then the ecumenism almost seems to keep their rigidity, but also manage to, you know, come together on things that maybe we should disagree on like maybe like communion for example i've heard the pope and the world yep. council of churches talk about that and it's a, it seems like on every front is my point we're getting yep. worse rather than better um and i was wondering what you might respond to. yeah oh, I, oh absolutely listen jay on, on the one hand i live with with tremendous confidence and excitement about what god is doing and believe that the light will go grow brighter and brighter until jesus returns at the same time i'm constantly calling out danger urgency look at things falling around, collapsing around us. So uh, J.D. King will be on at the bottom of the hour, so it's about 15 minutes from now, to open up his book to us. But he would, he would point out probably 
two main things in response. But I'm going to ask him some of those very questions, Jay, uh, for sure. But he would point out two main things. One is that overall quality of life, length of life around the world, deaths by war, if you look through history, that overall that human beings are living longer, that human beings are healthier, that the world is actually a safer place than it's been before. That'd be one thing. And that outside of America and Europe, the gospel is growing by leaps and bounds. More people are coming to faith than ever before. Churches are growing. People are turning to conservative biblical morality and, and the growth is, is continuing and doesn't seem to be slowing. Those would be, I would say, the, the natural and the spiritual points that J.D. King will be making. And uh, I'll, I'll agree with some and disagree with others. We'll, we'll see where we go with that. All right. Thanks for calling in, Jay. It's a good start. We'll be right back. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the Line of Fire. When does Jesus return? What, what's the significant sound that will be heard when he returns? Well, it's the blast of the trumpet, or the shofar blast, the ram's horn. That's what will be heard. What does it say in 1 Thessalonians 4, the, the voice of the archangel and the trump of God? What does it say in 1 Corinthians 15 at the last trumpet? Now, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 are famous rapture passages, always used to refer to the rapture, that will be caught up to meet the Lord, that, that the living will be transformed and glorified, that the dead Messiah will rise first, will all be caught up to meet the Lord. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to that. It's going to be the most amazing thing that's, that's ever happened to the, to the human race, to, to believers. And it's going to be with the blast of the trumpet. <clears throat> and remember, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's going to be the last trumpet. The so last trumpet, right, is last and will be raised up on the last day. So that's last. But, but look at what's written in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. But immediately following the trouble or the tribulation of those times, the sun will grow dark. The moon will stop shining. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the land will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's what we're looking forward to. It's a public event. It's a public appearing, and it's after the tribulation. That's when he returns, appears for every eye to see him. That's when we are caught up to meet him and escort him back down to the earth. Yes, it's public. It's visible. It's audible. It's the last trumpet, right? First Corinthians 15 says the last trumpet. This is the trumpet here. Obviously, this is the last one. Yeah, that's what we're looking for forward to. Uh, let's go to Jake in Michigan. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you, Dr. Brown. I appreciate you. Yeah, my question is concerning the uh, abomination of desolation spoken of yes, in sir. Daniel chapter 9, yep. Matthew 24, and I believe it's in Revelation also. I heard a recent teaching 
And I just want to get your opinion on it, that because it says in Daniel chapter 9 and Matthew 24 that he is going to set himself up in the holy place, that that is possibly a spiritual reference to someone coming out of the body of Christ, out of the church, and setting himself up as Jesus returning. And I want to get your opinion on that. It's it's certainly not... It's certainly not what the text is saying. First, when Jesus references the abomination of desolation in Daniel, it's found a few places in Daniel, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, and elsewhere in in Daniel, Daniel 12. So it's found a few different places. Its most immediate reference would have been when Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, Antiochus IV, sacrificed a pig on the temple altar in Jerusalem in, in in the 160s B.C., that would have been the first reference, but Jesus is saying, no, 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 there's, there's something more that's being spoken of. And certainly in Daniel 9, 24 to 27, it's speaking of right up through the end of the second temple, uh, and, and which is destroyed in the year 70. So when Daniel speaks of it in Daniel 9, 27, it's having to do with the destruction of the second temple and Jesus giving a warning about that. When you see this, and there are various interpretations, was it, was it the Romans bringing in an idolatrous image into the temple? Was it something else going on uh, that when the Jewish believers were to see this, that they were to, to flee when this happened because Jerusalem was coming down? You say yes, but is just like there was a dual reference in Daniel, is there a future reference as well? And many would say yes, that there will be a third temple physically built and that there will be some abomination that causes desolation in the third temple and yet again, right before the final destruction, a warning from the Lord. But the passage that you're speaking of in particular is in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians 2, but in connection with the coming of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, and our gathering together to meet him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily shaken in your thinking or anxious because of a spirit or a spoken message or a letter, supposedly from us claiming that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until after the apostasy has come and the man who separates himself, or, or excuse me, the, the lawless one is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or his worship so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, you could argue that this means he sets himself up in the church, which is the temple of God, Proclaiming that's himself what, that's what the teacher to be God. said. Right. Yeah. But the, the reason it's highly unlikely is because it's an end time passage speaking about the temple. And you, you have Jesus talking about the end times in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, all with reference to a physical temple. And the temple in Jerusalem was standing when Paul was writing it. So it's, it, it's, it's possible that it does refer to that that there will be some false Messiah setting himself in the church and claiming to, to be God. We know Jesus elsewhere warns us. If anyone says I'm the Christ, I'm the Messiah, don't, don't believe him because he's going to, he's going to come in the clouds. Uh, but the most likely meaning is that he will him set himself up in the temple, just as others conducted their idolatrous rites in the temple before. And that was the, uh, the abominating desolation or the, 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 the abomination that caused desolation, that it'll be the same at the end of the age. So it's not, it's not impossible. It's just not the most 
natural reading of the text and you always think first, okay, what's the most natural reading of the text right. before going to a, you know, a more spiritual exotic. It's not impossible, just unlikely. Quick follow up here. Um, because we know the scripture is divinely inspired by God and it says that throughout the scripture, yeah. if someone or an organization is wrongly interpreting scripture, does that make that person or organization a false teacher? Right. So it all depends on what they're teaching. False teacher in the New Testament is a heretic. False teacher, Second uh, Peter 2, they're like the false prophets of old. They deceive and mislead God's people to hell. They, it's not a matter of, you know, you have a difference about nuances of the end times or nuances about a future millennial kingdom or that we're having a debate about whether women can wear pants or not, or women should only wear dresses or, or stuff like that, or how much makeup should someone wear? Or can a man wear, you know, a gold watch? No, we're, we're talking about denying the resurrection of Jesus or denying his deity or saying that there are many ways, <laughs> excuse me, to salvation. So gotcha. uh, a false teacher is someone who misleads God's people in a destructive hellbound way. Now, if you say, no, 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 anyone teaching anything false is a false teacher. Well, I can guarantee you, I can, I can find every teacher on the planet and find something that they got wrong. And the same At with me. At one point in time, right? Right. Someone's gonna, there, yeah. Someone is going to find something I got wrong. So the, the idea that I have every jot and tittle exactly right today, only me or only my little group that agrees with me is, is the height of arrogance. And what it basically means is all of the church calling all of the rest of the church false teachers. And that's why I reserve the term carefully for those that I believe are hellbound heretics. If you say, do I agree with what someone teaches on this or that? I might say, no, you might say, how do you feel about this? I'd say, well, I could be misleading and even dangerous, but if I brand someone a false teacher, my understanding is they are not children of God. They're children of the devil. They are misled and they're misleading others. Either they are openly deceiving others. In other words, they know what they're doing is deception or they themselves have been deceived. But either way, they're hellbound sinners. The same with false prophets. Jesus tells us they're wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew 7. So Thank you, brother. Your, your ministry yeah. has been very helpful to me. Thank you, Jake. And let me just say this last thing, sir. Let's say that Brother Joe prophesies, uh, you know, the, the Lord has really been speaking to me about the political climate, and uh, he showed me that, uh, that Donald Trump will, will not make it out through this year. He won't be president. And then Donald Trump is president and makes it out just fine. Well, do I brand Brother Joe a false prophet? No, I say he prophesied incorrectly. He prophesied falsely. Do I listen to his other prophecies? Well, I'm going to have to see quite a track record of accurate words and have an explanation for why he got this one wrong before I'll take his words seriously. But to brand him a false prophet does not mean he just prophesied falsely once or twice. It means that he is a wolf in sheep's clothing, that he is a misleader, and that what he is introducing is destructive falsehood. That's why someone said, well, bring that person a false prophet. You're not going to, well, I don't agree with his teaching. I don't support his ministry, but I'm not guaranteeing that he's right now a hellbound sinner. That's why I don't do it. Hey, thank you, sir, for the call. All right, friends, don't forget, go to our website and order the new book, Not Afraid of the Antichrist, Professor Craig Keener and yours truly, Why We Don't Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. You'll see it's not written in a divisive tone, respectful of differences, 
but really opening up the word and giving you a strong message of hope and courage and faith. All the problem passages are dealt with, all the major arguments are dealt with, and we present the scriptural evidence as to why we don't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture. Let's put the issues on the table. Let's prayerfully discuss them and prayerfully interact over what the word says. When you order from our website, we'll also send you a link to download the interview that Professor Craig Keener and I did. So you can listen to the interview from Monday as well as read the book. And if you enjoy the book, it's official release date is next week, March 19th. If you enjoy it, then by all means, go to Amazon and post a review there for other folks to see. It's a great place to post reviews and to encourage others to read the book. If you enjoy it yourself, we'll be right back with J.D. King. Talk about his new book, Why You've Been Duped, and to believing that the world is getting worse. Stay tuned. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Is the world getting better? Can we expect it to get better until Jesus returns? Or is the world getting worse? J.D. King has experienced revival. He served as a leader in the Smithton Outpouring, which was an outgrowth of the Brownsville Revival. Touched many people around America and around the world. He's done tremendous research in the issues of divine healing, looked at it academically, biblically, spiritually. And he has a new book out, Why You've Been Duped Into Believing That the World Is Getting Worse. And, and uh, J.D., what's funny is that some people are really mad at you for saying yeah. that the world is, is getting better. Um, yeah. Now we'll we'll go through your reasons. I've I've dog-eared the book in a bunch of different places, and want to go sure. through that with you. But why do you think people are mad at you for saying that the world might actually be getting better, not worse? Oh, I think it just kind of destroys their notion of maybe the end times, or uh, I don't know. Maybe they've invested too much in despairing stories, Doctor Brown. I don't know. <laughs> and how how is it that you stumbled on this subject yourself? Well, you know, a lot of this comes out of, you know, just being in and around revival and seeing good things that God is doing, studying church history, uh, you know, also coming across a number of news articles over the years where you see these amazing, you know, statements about how the world is moving in a better direction. You're like, wow, this goes so contrary to what many believe. And so I guess just a number of pieces came together for me to to you know, make me believe that God is doing something maybe different than many expect. Yeah. Now I've I've written in the past about the growth of the gospel around the world, and we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, and and how the New Testament mentality is that the light is getting brighter and brighter, and that the darkness mm-hmm. is fading more and more. So I've written about that for for many years as well. Sure. And traveling around the world, you see what God is doing. At the same time, there are verses that seem to speak of apostasy, rebellion, mm-hmm. darkness at the end of the age. And in addition to that, uh, there's a lot that's happening in society around us that's, that's really bad. So part yeah. of what I want to do, J.D., is is go through the evidence with you that you present in yes. your book, Why You've Been Duped. 
And <laughs> then and maybe the title of your book provokes punks a little bit. Uh, just possibly. <laughs> uh, no one likes being duped. But um, uh, part of it, I want you to present your evidence. And part of yes. it, I'm going to give you some pushback and and sure. and play the the other side. I don't know if it's the devil's advocate or not, but sure, I would advocate. expect nothing less from you, Doctor Brown. <laughs> oh, okay, good, good, good. All right, so so let me let me grab my book here. Okay, um, you say this from the vantage point of the present. Almost all of history's trends take us in a positive direction. Around yeah. the globe, violence, disease, and poverty are lessening. The unfolding animal, annals of history reveal an optimistic story. So not even reading the Bible, but just looking at the state of the world today compared to past mm -hmm. centuries, we should have optimism. So unpack that for me. Sure. Well, you know, uh, just looking at raw statistics, I mean, for example, uh, ancient homicides were maybe on average 15% of the world. And, you know, now they're, they're such a small amount. I think the FBI mentioned that they've dropped 50% in the last 25 years. Uh, you know, there's things like, you know, life expectancy, ancient Greece, I think people lived 18 to 25 years, uh, 19, you know, early uh, 20th century, maybe in the 40s, now we're approaching like 80 years of life. I could go on and on, but all these different statistics and statements about famine, you know, uh, extreme poverty is below 10% now, uh, 200 years ago it was probably 94%. So all these different, you know, factors that affect people's real lives are uh, moving in incredibly positive directions. It's not to say there isn't a few outliers. You know, there's a categories. You know, single parenthood is is higher than it used to be, but many categories show you know things moving very much in a positive direction. All right, so let, let's just stay focused on the the natural for, for sure. a moment. Um, you uh, you have a quote from Steven Pinker by any standard. The world is nowhere near as genocidal as it was during its peak in the 1940s when Nazi, Soviet, and Japanese mass murders, together with the targeting of civilians by all sides in World War II, resulted in civilian death rate in the vicinity of 35 per 100,000 people per year. And then you have a chart of global war-related deaths, 1946 to 2016, uh, to show how, how massively it has decreased, even with terrorism and these other things taking place. So... Let me, let me just push back against that for a moment. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of people who had kind of a hopeful, almost humanistic theology that the human race is just getting better and better and better. And, you know, the end of the 1800s, so much progress coming into the 1900s, a lot mm -hmm. of optimism. If we look at this in a larger scope, not say 1946 till today, but mm -hmm. rather say 1900 until today or 1800 till today, wouldn't we say mm -hmm. that the 20th century was the bloodiest century of all time in terms of the, the numbers of people slaughtered? That's certainly true, Dr. Brown. Uh, the 20th century was, uh, you, know, cr you know, many, many deaths, many murders, many uh, violent war deaths. But, um, you know, the, uh, there were a number of deaths, though, in previous centuries, sometimes not on the same scale. But we also have to consider the fact that population growth has increased considerably over this time period as well. So... Sometimes you have to not just look at the numbers who have died, but the actual percentages based on population. Got you know, it. But, of course, right. You've, you've, got to, you've got to factor that in. But you, you don't want to downplay the devastating nature of the 20th century. It's just things have calmed down some after World War II. The question is, is, is that a trend or is that just a temporary respite before it gets, gets really bad? You know, Jew, Jewish history, you know, was there ever a time when, when two-thirds of, of the 
population of multiple multiple nations was wiped out. You know, you could mm-hmm. you could contrast it in that way. But l- let's look again at life expectancy because I think this is a bit of a shocker and global child mortality. So mm-hmm. life expectancy, say worldwide, eighteen fifties worldwide. How does that compare with where we are today? Well, you know, you're looking at say maybe you know. 30s and 40s on average, you know, that's when a person would live to. Uh, today, again, uh, in the West, we're in the late 70s. Uh, in Asia, it's in the early 80s. You know, there's been probably a 30, 40 year increase of life just in the last, you know, 100 years. And uh, that's pretty amazing when you think about it. Right. You know, and what, what about child mortality, the percentage of children that, that died sure. within the first year or at birth compared to now? You know, if you go back two centuries ago, it was close to 50%. Uh, mm. I think it was in the area of 20%, you know, and maybe up until about maybe 50 to 100 years ago, of course, globally. Currently, in the West, it's it's one half of 1%. So it's mm. very low. And, you know, when I was uh, ministering to some Koreans many years ago, I found out that they had what we would compute as someone's age, they were one year off. And that's mm-hmm. because they, they basically waited a year before sure. you kind of started life because make, you didn't know if you're going to make it through the year. If you made it through the year, then you were like, you made it. You know, now we'll, we'll, start, we'll start counting. What about, sure. what about global poverty worldwide? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the, uh, you know, close to 200 years ago, including even the wealthier Western nations, you had uh, what, what has been estimated to be 94% you know, extreme poverty. And, uh, you know, and it, it, I think it was still in the 50% range in the 1950s. Uh, currently, it's less than 9%, and many uh, analysts are saying it's going to be below 3%. And uh, I was reading, you know, Dr. Pinker and others, and they talk about uh, a man named Hans Rosling, too, and they, you know, unpack a lot of statistics and data. But they say many countries that we consider developing countries are now more in the mid-level category of economics, there's just amazing economic growth going on, you know, around the world, particularly places like, you know, China, India, places like that. Even even pockets of Africa are experiencing some real economic advancement. All right. So, again, if we're just looking at quality of life, we haven't talked about spiritual issues, mm-hmm. morality, haven't focused right. on that yet, which is obviously very important. But the sure. general life expectancy, quality of life, um, you've got charts here, annual rate of people dying from famine per decade and, and tremendous mm-hmm. decreases, global access to clean water and things like that, uh, sure. even rape and sexual victimization that in times past, women were just perceived more as, as property with less mm-hmm. rights. It's still the case in some parts of the world. You're saying that's on the decrease too. I am. Uh, yeah, a lot of these, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's, you know, you're on the front lines of social issues and social questions, but you know, I was reading, you know, about even uh, racist issues, um, you know, the, uh, I think over the last year or so, only uh, three unarmed African-American men were, were shot by police officers. And that's way lower than what uh, I think the popular culture believes. And, you know, in the case of even, you know, how women are treated, women are treated so much better today than they were centuries ago. Uh, you know, I was reading about, um, I think, the... Uh, age of consent or whatever in uh, some parts of the United States was in the nine and 10 years of age. That's, you know, that's a, that's a horrible way to imagine how women were treated years ago. And I mean, but 
gratefully, things are moving in a better direction now. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'll, I'll push back on some of this in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, Certainly. But uh, here, here's the, well, we'll t- tell you what, let's, let's just focus on this now, not just in mm-hmm. America, right. but worldwide, there's, there've been tens and tens and tens of millions of, abor- I mean, hundreds of millions of abortions right. worldwide, even though you point that there's been a decrease, say from 1988 in America down to, to today, mm-hmm. Uh, there's been a steady decrease. You still have the blood of 60 million plus unborn. You've got hundreds of millions of babies slaughtered worldwide, something that's taken place on a greater level than ever before. Whatever baby sacrifice took place with idols in the past uh, was Mm -hmm. not on the, on the scale of what we see today. Wouldn't that one thing alone tilt the balance in the direction of the world is getting worse. The slaughter of so many unborn children. Well, I can in no way justify abortion. It's, perhaps the most horrific thing happening in our lifetime and even in previous lifetimes. Um, you know, I cannot uh, defend uh, the taking of an in- innocent baby. You know, how could I justify that? No, there's no way. And uh, again, I do believe the numbers are showing uh, a decrease, and, and I didn't include it in the book, but I've seen some evidence of it even in other parts, particularly the West. There is a decrease, but still way too many babies are dying. Uh, in the book, you may not have a chance to read it, but I talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, high numbers of babies that were, you know, aborted through other means in previous generations. Unfortunately, it appears that abortions are not entirely a new thing, and it seems that women in other generations were doing it through, you know, drinking toxic, you know, mixes and doing other things to try to take the life of children. It's a horrific thing. I'm not sure that the uh, desire to take children's life is entirely a new thing. Got it. No, it's certainly not a new thing. But my only point is that, you know, if you wrote this book 20 years ago, we'd have to say uh, overall abortions worldwide. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. I'm speaking with author, researcher, and Christian leader J.D. King. His new book, Why You've Been Duped into Believing that the World is Getting Worse. As afforded by Bill Johnson, some of you will be really excited about that and want to get the book immediately. Some of you won't touch the book because of that. So different, different audiences. My interview with Bill Johnson probably got as much attention as, as anything that I've I've done from from all sides. Uh, JD, yeah. Let let's just say that we agree that in the natural, mm-hmm. people are living longer. There's less global poverty. There's more general prosperity. There's more mm-hmm. general health, etc. That's that's mm-hmm. pretty much undeniable. And obviously, mm-hmm. we're talking about real suffering, real hardship, not statistics. But right. but you know, people barely getting by and families having to migrate from territory to territory just to try to find food to make it in a bad winter mm-hmm. and the whole family's going to die and you, you know you watch half your kids die and so on and so this really is, is significant it's very 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 important but the bigger issue would be the spiritual mm-hmm. issue uh i right. was saying we, we just had a slight sync problem with our clock so my, my last words just got cut off but i was saying if if yeah. you look back let's say you go back 50 years and and mm-hmm. you were writing the book is the world getting better or worse and then look back from that perspective, you know, the rise of abortion, 
various moral issues, the say gay activism and the transforming of marriage, that, that battle's being fought now all around the world. It's being fought yes. in India. It's being fought in China. It's not just in America. So mm-hmm. what about what looks like to be a, a moral decline in, in Europe, pushback against the gospel, which is unprecedented, maybe more hostility sure. to the gospel in America than we've, we've seen before. But couldn't you argue that where it really counts that the world is getting far worse rather than better? Well, I know many feel that way, Dr. Brown. Um, let me be very clear here. I don't want to suggest that there is nothing getting worse or there's no problems in the world. I'm, you know, I'm not trying to embrace a Pollyannish approach to all this. But, you know, again, I'm saying for the most part things are moving in the right direction. Um, let me acknowledge right now that abortion, moral issues, issues with family, you know, transgenderism, gay activism, all that, that you know, that's it's a problem and seems to be a growing problem in the United States, certainly Europe. Um, but to answer your question, I don't believe that the moral trends are, are you know, going the wrong direction in every arena. And again, uh, you were probably going to cover this a little bit more in the future, but because of the gospel, because of the spread of revival, you know, there are uh, many places where there are moral conditions moving in the right direction in many ways. I mean, one of them that comes to mind is Latin America, particularly uh, the issues of, of severe alcoholism and family abuse and what have you, and just husbands treating their wives right is moving in many uh, areas in an incredibly better way. Uh, and, you know, there's other examples like that. I mean, even in Africa, you know, there, uh, again, you know, I am I, very disturbed by some of the same issues that you cover often. And But, you know, there is examples of morality becoming better in places, I do believe. Yeah, and, and in fact, a, a lot of the pushback against the extreme LGBT activism and things like that, as the United Methodists have just seen, is coming from mm-hmm. places like Africa, where the yes. gospel is growing. So I, I, I do want to put these things out. I want to be sober about them. My own view of the end is we're, we're going to have parallel extremes, great darkness, great light, uh, great moving of God, great uh, apostasy uh, right until the Lord returns. That, that's how I see the scripture. But before I, I ask you questions about verses that seem to speak of apostasy and rebellion, mm-hmm. let's talk about what God is doing in terms of the increase of the gospel sure. around the world. Uh, in Asia, Absolutely. in Latin America, right. in in Africa, and and why the idea that Islam will pass Christianity is is really a, a wrong idea, right? Well, I'm glad you you know you brought that out. That's really the point of my book here, Doctor Brown. As you could well imagine, I'm I'm interested in talking about how Jesus is changing the whole world. I yeah. do believe he is, and that's not to say there isn't problems or pushback or darkness or evil to triumph over. There obviously is. But the church is growing. Uh, by you know conservative estimates, we have 2.5 billion Christians today. Uh, some have said maybe as many as 3 billion, maybe even 3.5. That's probably a little bit of a, of a stretch. I shouldn't say Christians. I should say people that identify with Jesus. That would be a better yeah. way to say it. You and I both know there's not real conversions in many cases, but the numbers are still there. Um, Africa right now, there is... Uh, conservatively around 500 million Christians. I think there's a billion people in the whole African continent. Uh, there's going to be uh, 750 million analysts are saying, you know, within a decade. That's pretty amazing. Latin America has had an 877% growth of, like, evangelicalism since 1900. That's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, incredible. 
And so nothing yep. like this has ever been seen. The growth of the gospel no. in the 20th yeah. and early 21st century is like nothing ever seen in world history. You're exactly right. And, you know, I think that it's comparable to the first few you know, centuries of the Church. Uh, you know, uh, Brazil is currently somewhere in the neighborhood of 50% identifying with some kind of spirit-filled evangelicalism. That's, that's pretty amazing. We can talk not just about Latin America and Africa, but Asia. You know, uh, uh, there was only uh, about one million Christians in China in 1949. There's conservatively 150 million, you know, and some say even more than that. Uh, and some, you know, some of the European journalists and all are suggesting that China will be the largest Christian nation within just a few years. Um 1910, there was 27 million Christians all across Asia. Now there's probably close to half a billion. Mm. That's, that's pretty incredible when you think about it. Even the Middle yeah. East, and I'm sure you've studied this some, but there's been more activity in the last 15 years than the previous 15 centuries. Uh, maybe upwards of 20 million people from Muslim backgrounds have accepted Jesus. And, I mean, that's, that's fantastic news. Right, and these are unprecedented numbers. And Islam does not grow a lot by conversion, mainly birth rates. And if you point out, those right. are those are leveling out as well. Yeah, so it's so important. I had in one of my books, I asked the question, is good news bad news for the gloomers and doomers? It's yeah. so important. I, look, I sound the alarm every day about what's happening in our culture. And I think whatever generation you put me in, that would be the message I'd be sounding, the, the prophetic right. wake-up call and... And that's that's been with us uh, through through history, and as long as God's been raising up His His servants to speak, but we we don't want to f- major put our focus on who the devil is and what he's doing, but who the Lord right. is and what he's doing, and what's happening in terms of the harvest, in terms of people coming to faith. And I'm with them in these countries all around the world. No generation has ever seen what we're seeing now in terms of people coming to faith in these numbers uh, around the globe. What about the passages though? Matthew 24, if we, if we believe it has an end-time uh, uh, application as well, that because of the increase in wickedness, the love of many will grow cold, or Second Thessalonians 2, that the, the rebellion, the apostasy has to come first before the Lord returns. What about those passages that speak yeah. of apostasy as well? How do you factor that in? Well, that's a great question. Uh, this is an area, you know, you and I agree on most everything. You know, I've read even your healing dissertation. I, I love your work. I'm, I yeah. consider you someone I admire, but we differ perhaps here on eschatology and these issues. I mean, I'm going to be honest. I'm a post-millennialist, and, uh, and I, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, you're more of like a historic pre-millennialist. Yes, sir. Um, you bet. Which is great. I respect that. Um, I've come to my view, you know, from studying history and theology and, and revival influences, I believe the passages referred to are referring to issues, particularly Matthew 24, that were uh, affecting the first century, uh, the apostasy that was within Israel at that time. That's how I would interpret those passages. Not to so say there's Thessalonians a good... two. You'd also interpret with with regard to the first century. I believe that it's referring primarily to the first century. Yes. Got it. Okay. So yes. Yeah, so we would definitely have a difference there, and that's that's a whole other whole other uh, question. Uh, uh, to to get into in terms of post-millennial versus historical premillennial view. So you expect then that the gospel is going to continue to increase and grow, uh, bringing in basically the the fullness of the kingdom of God on the earth, after which Jesus will come and and bring us into eternity, hence post-millennial, so that in other words, you see these trends as going in a certain direction, 
I see them as the only way you can have a mass apostasy is that there's mass conversion first and that, you know, we, we see it ongoing as it is, that as the gospel is spreading, there's also great apostasy and people following mm-hmm. a, a shallow gospel. You know, we see it in America, we see it in, in Europe, but we stand together in preaching a strong message of repentance Absolutely. And, and recognizing the urgency of the hour. So last question for you. And again, the new book, why you've been duped into believing that the world is getting worse. And friends, there's no denying the statistics in the book, especially with the growth of the gospel worldwide. That's the big thing I want to major on and get excited about and, and, and charge yes. you to, to be encouraged about. But JD, one minute, if you can answer this, I live with a sense of tremendous urgency every day. But yes. if I thought everything's getting better, I might not feel that same urgency. How do you combat a lack of urgency if you're convinced the world is getting better? That's a great question. I believe that, uh, you know, really encountering, you know, the, the power of the Lord and just the grace in a dynamic way compels us to share the gospel and to preach truth. And I don't know, perhaps I'm different, uh, but I find, uh, the you know, the idea of, of victory and transformation, hope, compelling, and actually makes me want to preach even more. Perhaps I'm different, uh, but, I mean, it's a valid concern that you bring up, but you know, I, I don't know. I've never met anyone that has a genuine encounter with grace and glory that doesn't want to share that with others. And you know, and, I, and perhaps the other answer would be, what about people that are living right now? In, in other words, there's urgency because people need Jesus today, mm-hmm. and if they reject yes. Him, they're lost. And therefore, mm-hmm. we have an assignment to this generation. Hey, friends, we're out of time. But as we're talking about the end times, I thought a great time to bring on JD. It was great hanging out with you a couple years ago. Look forward to seeing you again. God bless you, man. God bless you. All right. Don't miss tomorrow, Thoroughly Jewish Thursday.